Before we get started, um, I just want to ask everyone who's listening, if you find the podcast or this episode helpful, please share, so like and subscribe on Apple Podcasts and Spotify, wherever you're listening. Uh, leave a review if you can. It really helps to get the podcast out to whoever it can help. And um, the easiest way for you guys to help me get more listeners is uh to share it with people that you think it'll help. So um, I really appreciate it. And um, on to the show. This is the Cherished You Podcast. I am your host, Rama. There is a uh, content and trigger warning on this episode for suicide, narcissism, and abuse. Please proceed with caution. Not everything heard on this episode is, um, not everything said on this episode is ready to be heard by you. So just please uh, make sure you're taking care of yourself. And if you're not ready to hear this, it's totally okay to skip it. Thanks so much for joining me again today, guys. Um, This is going to be part three of my story of being born into a single family cult with my narcissistic mother as the head. Um, If you haven't listened to the other two, do proceed with caution on on all of these episodes. There's a lot of, I talk a lot about the abuse that I went through, um, my experience with um, mental health and uh, suicide is in there as well. So please, uh, be careful as you navigate these episodes. Um, it's very likely depending on where you are in your journey, you're just not ready for it. And it's totally fine. Uh, this episode is really uh, post high school. So it's like, um, it's college, it's med school and the formative things that happened to me in those years. And the, this time period it in real time it runs about um 2002 till about 2000 um 13 1314 and these years are um there's a lot there's actually I mean I could have split this up into two to be honest but they kind of meld together also so these in college like I said, I, in the last episode, I explained a lot about college and how I got in, but college was really important um, because for the first time in my life, I was doing what I wanted to do. I lived away from home, lived by myself, and um, I learned, I was in a new city by myself with no car. I didn't need one in Boston, and especially with the way that um, BU's campus is set up for their undergrad. It's right in the middle of the city. The subway right, runs right through the middle of the road, so there really wasn't a need for a car. Um, I did end up making friends with some people later on in college uh, who had a car, and that really didn't change my experience really much of anything. So um, I think overall I was just, um, I was glad to be away from my family, from my mother, and be on my own and, you know, figure stuff out on my own. I was just really excited about that. And it was the first time I remember being happy for more than a couple of days that wasn't ruined. Um, 
I was still um, I was still depressed. I, I definitely remember this like this this low grade depression that I've kind of always lived with, that still existed, but um, it was still I was still happy because I was away. But my freshman year, um, because I was living by myself for the first time. I did a lot of things that were very antithetical to me. So I used to stay up till three, four o'clock in the morning. Um, I never missed class really, but I wasn't my best in class. And I didn't do very well in school that first semester. I really sucked it up because I, I realized I didn't know how to study. I got through high school basically because I retained a lot of information in class and I had really good teachers, but college isn't like that. A lot of the professors don't really teach. They just kind of regurgitate from a textbook. I didn't know how to study in the traditional sense because what I didn't know at the time was that I had ADHD and was neurodivergent. I didn't learn like everybody else, so but I didn't know how I learned. So I, I really couldn't solve the problem either. I just knew that I had a problem and there was no solution. So that was always, um, that was something that became a problem. When the academic probation hit, um, my, my first semester, oh Lord, I was, I was so embarrassed and I thought I was being slick when I got the letter, but then apparently they sent another one and my mother got that one cause they sent that one after we were back at school from winter break. My mother shows up one day ready to like pack me up and take me home. This was in February. I remember this. And I was just like absolutely no I'm not going anywhere in anything like this and then um I ended up staying at school and I ended up getting my grades up where um I was able to stay in school uh for the rest of the time there um college that was I mean I ended up I ended up figuring out what I needed to do and I learned how to study and and I got good at it but I remember there was a, that second semester of my freshman year was a really, really scary time because I had just finally gotten this little glimpse of freedom and it was going to get taken away from me all because I didn't know what I didn't know. I just, I didn't know how to study and I didn't know that that was my problem. So I didn't know who to ask for help. And what did happen during that time is that I had, a, I had made a couple of friends who really I would be friends with during the entire time that I was at school. At, um, in college and they helped me um, figure out how to study and stuff when um, I don't even think they knew what was going on but we kind of like they helped me out and f helped me figure out what it is that I needed to know and that was really the the first time I learned what it was to be um loved in a healthy way and it doesn't have to be romantic like this was just friendship and there was really close friendship but they were there for me and I didn't know what that was like because um I had not had a relationship really where that was the case that with with my own peers like people my own age and I would you know I didn't really have really good friendships with my mom or like around my mother because my mother always found a way to ruin it and I, um, that was in college was really the first time where people knew me for me, knew what my flaws were and they accepted me. They helped me where we could and they helped me get access to the resources I needed to get help that they didn't know how to help me with. And that was really, um, again, like a formative, like, like a core memory almost, um, that I have that really kind of helped me out later on in my life 
when things would hit the fan and I'd be like, okay, so this is how it works. This is what I got to do. This is what I did the last time. Let's try something again. These people came through for me on some other really, really hard things that went through my life. When I went away to med school and I was really far away, we, they still, we all still kept in touch for a little while before things got kind of hard. And, but those relationships and those friendships are still some of the most important times in my life because my experience in college was completely colored by those relationships and my memory of college is still I still I still call it the best time of my life and it's because of those people and again eternally grateful for those people for accepting me and understanding that my home situation was really fucked up and always taking my side on it even if they had no idea what they were taking my side on for and I say this because when when you're somebody who was raised by a narcissistic parent and then you're isolated from a lot of people, you get told that the people on the outside don't, won't get you. They won't understand you. Nobody will love you like I do. Like the, the narcissistic parent says that all the time. And it is so important to find the little glimmers of hope because there is someone in your life at some point who did give you that small little glimmer that's going to be like, no, guess what? There is somebody who will love you that's outside of this family who will not hurt you in the attempt to love you. And I'm constantly amazed at, at my own luck for finding these people because had it not been for them, I don't know if I would have lived. And that brings me to um, what the trigger warning was for is like after the ap- academic probation thing, uh, toward the end of that year, I wasn't sure of my, at the end of my freshman year, I wasn't sure if I was gonna get the grades to be able to get off of probation and um, and be able to stay. And at one point, the depression, my, my depression had really gotten the best of me and I was, and I wasn't sure my mother was gonna let me go back to school and I, um, I, I took like an entire bottle of aspirin, I think I, is what I did. It wouldn't have done anything. Um, I realized that afterwards. I don't know why. I thought that, I remember when I was taking, I was like, you know, because I was, we had started doing some like intro bio stuff. And I was like, I wonder if I just take a bunch of this, if it'll trash my liver enough that it'll kill me. And it, it was aspirin and it wasn't expired. And I don't even, like, I I remember I didn't really do much of anything. Um, I woke up the next day absolutely normal. I never was sick. I was never anything. Didn't feel any kind of way when I did it. Um, But I do remember when I took all the pills that I was, there was something in the back of my mind that says, I hope this doesn't work this time. I didn't want this to be the time that worked because I, for some reason, had a feeling that I'd be able to get out of the mess that I had put myself into. But that was, um, it was still an attempt. I was still really depressed. Um, I'm not trying to minimize my own state of mind. I was in a bad place. I did want to get out of it. And th- that was what I chose to do. It just, uh, it just so happens that the method I chose was um, not going to be effective. And I sometimes wonder if I did that on purpose, because I think I did. But my therapist along the way have told me not to say that. <laughs> so it just depends on, I guess, on your point of view. I don't... Um, I, I, I think I hold on to the fact that maybe I didn't really want to die that time as much as I did the first time around because um, I felt like I had people that I could, who would help me. And 
and that was true. It did turn out to be true when I did finally get back and was able to um, get back to my friends. And, you know, we were all in the same classes. So we they were able to be like, oh, hey, you know what? Like, let's try this or let's, you know, let's go study. And then they would sit me like kind of fiddling around. And then, they, you know, they helped, you know, we learned, figured out how to do flashcards, figured out how to do, find good uh, uh, worksheets and problems to solve and all this other jazz, but they, they're the ones who taught me how to study. Because it, it, if you're neurodivergent and you're able to get through high school pretty unaffected and you, and you don't know that you have a problem, um, it's really daunting to figure out, oh, hey, I don't know how to do this like everybody else seems to. Like, I can't just keep reading it and expect something to change. Like, that doesn't work for me. Um, and, you know, I, that, that was where I really learned that how my brain works and it would still take me a few years to figure out um, the best ways to for me from for me to study. But that was really where I started to get pieces of information about myself. Where I was like, okay, I need to know how things work. So I I'm not gonna I'm not a memorizer. I mean I'm I'm an, I'm somebody who likes to understand information. So that's um, that was something that I started to learn there, and that was really important because again these are like core memories that were stuck in me that when things got hard later on in my life instead of me reverting to oh, I think I'm going to try to kill myself again, because again, the depression is always there. And it never takes much for my for 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 depression to go from mild to severe in me, especially when you are that dysregulated and that traumatized. Like it, it, it doesn't take much. It takes one one thing triggering an overthinking episode. And all of a sudden, you're now completely anxious, you, you can't get out of it. It's been days. And all of a sudden, you're just you need to, you need something to make it stop. And it's really important to understand that a lot of mental health issues that do come out of this kind of trauma with narcissistic abuse is just, um, it can go from zero to a hundred real, real fast because it doesn't take much for your nervous system to remember how, how scary it feels to not have, um, the, the foundation, the foundation that you're supposed to have, like the, an internal uh, emotional foundation that, uh, you know, a lot of people who, who go through this kind of abuse, especially with, from parents, um, we just don't have that emotional foundation that keeps us stable when things go wrong. We don't have it. And I wasn't at the place yet where I was building that yet. So I was, the bottom would fall out of something. I would get upset and the bottom would fall out and I wouldn't know what to do. Um, but that's really important to understand. A lot of that is nervous system stuff, and you, you you can't even get to a point of trying to regulate that until you realize exactly how bad you're being abused and how you need to not be in that abusive environment in order to even start to get a hint of what it is that it feels like to be stable. Um, the thing that happened with college is that um, next up for me was med school. Med school was really hard to get into. Um, it's hard anyway. It's even harder when you're not a legacy kid. It's even harder when you're not a white kid. It's harder when you don't have 100% A's. Um, and I was in all of those camps simultaneously. Um, but there was the Caribbean option. I ended up going to school. I ended up getting into um, Antigua and then I ended up going there. Again, the the entire problem this time has been that I am somebody who 
has undiagnosed ADHD. I am a traumatized still child, even though I'm in a, a relatively adult body. I'm 21 when I graduate college. But I still know I want to be a doctor. I don't know why I want to be a doctor, but I want to be a doctor. Um, at this point, I still want to be a brain surgeon, but getting into med school is really hard. And so I go into the Caribbean route. I do get into the Caribbean school, and then we go to the Caribbean because that's the only other option. But I'm still getting hit with these stories from my mother about, oh, hey, this person's kid didn't do it and wasted all their money, and this person's kid didn't do it. You're not going to waste my money, and I'm not going to knock. Oh, my God, all the threats, all the things, all, all the time, all the time. But what I don't know in all of this is how to study. Like I really don't, um, I, got, I got through college because I had really good friends and we would help each other. And that information I did understand to a certain degree. But med school was a different animal. I don't have my friends, the same friends anymore. I have a lot more trouble making friends in med school. And I also meet my first boyfriend here. Um, I lucked out with him. Again, um, I... I think that it's so important when those of us who have been through this kind of thing to tell our stories because if you're in the middle of it and at the time had you asked me, I didn't know that um, when, when, when I met my first boyfriend, I didn't, I was, I had not had friends for a while. I was kind of feeling again, lost and listless again. And I did, you know, whenever, you know, I did the thing that every girl does when they have their first boyfriend. And I was like, I was you know, according to Western standards, I was pretty old for having my first boyfriend at like 23. But when, when me and him got together, we were, we were both kids and I didn't understand the extent. Again, I could not even say out loud. Um, I don't even think I had, at that point, I didn't have the language around my mother's narcissism or the fact that we were abused. Like I didn't have any of that language. I just knew that um, I can't, he can't meet my family. Like, I, I don't know how to, I don't know how to approach that. And I didn't even think we were going to date for that long. Um, we were long distance for a lot of it because I was at the end of my time in the Caribbean and he was just starting his. So we were really only together for a month, but it was like, we were, we went from, we met to living together in a blink of an eye. It was really, really fast. I loved him to, with the kind of naivete that you have that a teenage girl has because that's pretty much emotionally where I was at. Um, and it was really my first time kind of realizing that I had issues around intimacy because I didn't know if I did. You know, you, you don't know what you don't know. And that was really my first experience where, oh, I'm like, oh, okay, I have, I've got some some issues around here. But, you know, we were, we were not the healthiest, you know, again, we were kids and, and, you know, it, it was just long distance is hard, especially when you have a disorganized attachment the way that I do and not ever feeling sure that somebody loves me, especially if they don't see me like um, emotional permanence is not something I have. And even now it's something I really, really struggle with. Um, I have it in some relationships. I don't have it in others. Um, I've talked about emotional permanence before, but I always feel like if I'm not in front of the person, like they'll, they don't remember me. They don't know I exist. They forgot about me. And 
that's you know that's still something that that's a that's a work in progress for me. Um, but it was much worse back then because I didn't um, I didn't even have language around it. But in hindsight, and you know, going through all my old journals and stuff, I was it's always just very interesting to see um, exactly how how immature you are before you start healing, and how out of control you feel when you first start healing. But he was still really formative. Like we're still friends after all these years. We haven't we we broke up in two thousand eleven, um, and we went through a lot of shit. But that was um, you know just our own uh, shit between us, and then the, you know shit from my family, shit from his family. Um, but we're still well, I mean we're still friends today. He's still um, if I'm in a bad place, he's still one of the first people I'll call, and. I still am grateful for my experience with him because he really was the first person that wasn't in, in a, in a, in a personal intimate setting was able to show me that I was worthy of being loved for who I was without anything. Um, I didn't know how to handle it at the time at all, but I'm still grateful for the experience because, um, my relationships after that have always been a lot more unstable but for as young as we were and inexperienced as we were and and me just not knowing what how much shit and what kind of shit I had on my side of the street I'm still really grateful for that experience because again it's like all the other little relationships along the way that have saved me in 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 his own way he still continues to just save me from my own insanity a lot and so for that I'm always grateful that we we've been able to um still maintain being friends after all this time, especially everything that we, we went through. Um, but another thing that did happen was that when I was with him, I, I think we had a fight one time and I felt like he thought that I didn't, because I couldn't tell my family about him, that I like didn't care. And that wasn't true. It was just, you know, I knew about my family wasn't going to be accepting that that was going to be a hurdle. And I stupidly decided that night in an attempt to prove that I was worthy of being loved by him, I went and told my sister about it. My sister lost her shit on me. And that was really what cemented in my mind that, um, I don't know why I went to my sister, to be honest. Um, she was never really accepting to begin with. And I, I feel like it was kind of um, like fulfilling my own prophecy around my family. Like I just wanted to prove to myself that my family was really as um, unsafe as I thought they were, and and they and they are, um, and they were in that instant. And like it was, she always held it against me that somehow I did something morally wrong by being with somebody who wasn't the same religion, wasn't from the same country. And like, not that any of that stuff matters. It's just internalized, um, separatist, you know, that's, it's just like, oh, he's not like us when, you know, she didn't marry somebody like her either, but it's the same religion doesn't mean anything when I wasn't religious. It didn't matter to me. Um, but again, that's something that I wasn't allowed to say out loud to my family because that was blasphemous. Also, that was going against my mother. That was going against God. That was all this other bullshit that was wrapped up in the the cult of our family. But really what happened there and even um, post, post-med school when my brother had cancer 
and all of, and everything that happened with him when my family tried to stop me from finishing med school because there was no money. Um, when I really realized that my mother really, it doesn't matter how many bad things happen to her kids, it's always about her. Um, even after my brother's cancer, it was about her, it wasn't about my brother. And I just had these instances, one after the other after the other, in a very short amount of time. I think in the calendar, it was probably like a year. And it, the, the whole experience there was just confusing because nothing made sense. Like it, I, I didn't, I didn't, again, there was, I had no language. Nobody talked about this kind of thing. There was the, like the internet didn't exist in the way that we know it now. TikTok didn't exist back then. Twitter was barely online. Facebook was basically a thing. Instagram didn't, wasn't even there yet. And nobody talked about this kind of thing online. I didn't have access to therapists yet. Um, but all of this was just so... It was so confusing to go through and I had nobody I could talk to outside of my boyfriend and I didn't feel like he understood everything I was going through because you can't if you're not if you don't have the same experience you can't but we were trying to make it work it didn't um I felt like I was stuck at one point because when my brother was going through his his cancer treatments, I was working three jobs. So I would work at 6 a.m. for my parents because I wasn't allowed to. My parents didn't have money to send me back to school, so I was staying at home. So I was working for my parents at 6 o'clock at their store. Then I would go to work till 2. Then I had to work at... Um, then I was working at the mall. And then on the weekends, I had a, a job at Jenny Craig. Because I was, I, and also during all this time, there's also this underlying thing of I had to lose weight because I was getting too fat. Um, you know, I, I like there's all this underlying, you know, misogyny and patriarchy, all that bullshit underneath. But there was so much upheaval, and then all of a sudden, my mother, my parents decide to go to Pakistan to build a house. They didn't have money to send me to school, but they had money to go to Pakistan and build a house. And all of a sudden, I'm tapped with, um, you know, while my brother's, you know, going through treatments or whatever, um, I am tapped with m being the office manager for the store. And it's, it's such a wild time now that I think about it because there's so much going on and they just got up and left. They just got up and left. And they left me with all this responsibility without really ever showing me how to do it. They're like, oh yeah, you'll be fine. And so what do I do? I have access to the money from the store. And at this point we were still doing pretty well because obviously my parents got up and they went to Pakistan to build a freaking, you know, two and a half acre house. But I'm at the store and I'm like, you know what? I'm going to start to gather, you know, save some money to go back to school because that was, I mean, I still wanted to be a doctor. I was still taking my board exams. I was still studying for them and taking them. I was like, I still have to go and finish this thing. Not knowing really that my heart wasn't in it. Like I, I realized after, you know, after the first two years of med school, that med, med school was not what I thought it was going to be. And I could tell. 
And I, I still remember the feeling of dread that came through my body. And she kind of like, and she's, she's actually not even at the house, but um, as I go in, I see her shoes I, and I'm like, okay, yeah, she's back. She shows up later on that night. And I guess she went to the store first and came back home. And then she's like, oh yeah, you're going back to school now. And I'm like, I don't know what got stuck up in her crawl real fast that made her fly across the globe to come back to send me back to school. But regardless, you know what? Fine. If I'm going back to school, I'm going back to school. And I was fine with that. I had to quit my job to give her my two weeks notice. And literally within six weeks of her showing up, I was on my way to Chicago. And in Chicago was, uh, you know, I got, I got an apartment, I got my rotations handled and uh, my, she got me a car in all that time that, uh, the whole agreement was that because I needed a car in Chicago, they would pay for the car while I was going to school. And I, on my own made sure that I was, uh, I had a part-time job of some sort so that I could still get some money in case she decided to cut me off because she could probably do that. Cause she was going to be at the store and she would decide whether or not I just didn't get money, you know, randomly. So I didn't trust her. So I, you know, I was, um, I made sure that I had a part-time job and then I went to Chicago, uh, all things considered was a relatively easy experience. She drove me there. We drove together in the car, um, with my brother and, you know, she helped me set up the apartment whatever. We went to Ikea. Like she didn't really like blow her gasket or anything. It was really weird. Um, I broke up with my boyfriend shortly after that. Um, and was you know i was doing my rotations in chicago was keeping my head down i'm not again i'm not really a partier wasn't really concerned about anything and then i i lived near this pizza bagel place that had like new york style bagels and pizza and because i was you know i'm from new york and i was in chicago i was missing new york food um i ended up going to this place a lot and ended up starting dating one of the guys that worked there and that was a relationship that I would be in for the next few years. The reason this is significant is that the relationship itself really from the start, because I remember I tried to end it pretty, pretty soon after we started, because I was like, you know, there's no, I wanted to be single for a while. I was coming out of something super serious. Um, this guy's a white guy. I don't really have a future with him. I don't, you know, we don't have anything in common. Um, but what I didn't realize at the time, I didn't realize till later on was that he was a covert narcissist. So I didn't even know he was narcissistic until way toward the end. Um, and it was one of those relationships that like, you know, there was absolutely nothing there. Like I, it, I, I was, we, we never, we barely talked. We barely fought because we didn't really have anything in common. I didn't have any expectations of him. Um, you know, I was, there were a few things in between where my mother kind of randomly showed up and we were living together and it was like, oh, you're, you know, who are you living with? But he wasn't there, so she couldn't say anything and anything like that. And it was just, um, but it was a nothing relationship. It took up so much of my life, but I, I just remember not really feeling like myself. Again, I, I went into performance mode pretty quick. And so I wasn't really myself around this guy because I just, he was a, he was like, 
he was not somebody I felt like I needed to show myself to. And I was smarter than him. So what's the point in going around being smarter than somebody else? I don't, I don't, I didn't feel the need to rub that in his face. Um, you know, I was, I was in school at the time. So I was really more focused on that. And I was going through my own existential crisis of trying to figure out, well, I've been working so hard to become a doctor and it turns out being a doctor is not what I want to do anymore because I can't be the kind of doctor I want to be in the system the way it currently is. So that was a whole other thing I was going through. I was working at um, this mortgage place, with, I mean, with relatively good people, but like had, had issues there too that I was hiding from. I was doing a lot of hiding during this time. I remember that like I, I was the only one who knew myself, but I have, I was so busy all the time that I didn't have time to really know who I was. But the one thing I started doing here was I started going to therapy and it took me a few tries because, uh, it turns out that a lot of therapists don't have experience with narcissism. They don't have experience with narcissistic parents and they, and if the therapist is white and you are not, there is a cultural difference that comes in that the therapist does not know. And I was dealing a lot with that. And it took me a long time to kind of find a, ther a therapist I could afford who kind of understood what I was going through. And for a long time, I had to make do with just a, a therapist that I could go to to just at least get the shit off my chest. And that, that was really the only space where I let myself be myself. And, and again, I was, and I, I was doing, um, I had, I, I was trying to figure out something for myself because I was doing a lot of things for everybody. I was performing and doing a lot of things for everyone. So the one thing that I was trying to figure out for myself was whether or not medicine was still for me. And during this time, I learned about, changing my food. I did that for a little while. I lost weight that I'd never been able to lose before. And I was for the first time in my life, not depressed. And it was all because I changed my food. I didn't change anything else during this time. And that started a shift in me. That was this gradual unculting of myself, not only from my family, not only from my, um, the desires that I feel like I had been, that had been put inside me by my family, you know, the wanting to be a doctor, um, how, what that looked like, what kind of doctor, but the, the learning about food, the impact that that had on me at the time, both physically, mentally, and spiritually, I started this unraveling around me and it happened very, very fast. And it happened in a way that really upended a lot of things that I were, was sure were true. And I'll talk about more about this in the next episode, but really this really starts when I changed my food in 2012. And I did my first Whole30 in March of 2012. When I first did that, what that Whole30 did for me was completely shift my, my biochemistry where I could finally see for myself what was going on for me. And, I find, and, I, and that was when I learned to, to dig for the answers. Again, in, a, in an internet that it's still relatively small. All, all things considered, it's an internet that's still relatively small to compared to where it is now. But 
I'm gonna end this this episode here because this really this next part really starts into the what what I have um what I'm planning to talk about in the next episode. But really, this this ep- like I I hope it comes across that um there's there's certain things that kind of get added on like the Yanya Lalich is a is a sociologist who does a lot of work on cults and she says like you know you add this stuff to your shelf before the shelf breaks and then you finally have to come to terms with what you've been living with these years this college and med school years all these formative experiences that happened in these years for me this was really heavy things being added onto that shelf um that really broke the shelf for me in like 2011 and when my mom came back from Pakistan at the drop of a hat, I, again, I didn't have language at the time still, but I had, I was much more attuned to the feelings I was experiencing in my body. And that was what I was like, okay, something's here. That's just not right. And I, um, I have got to figure out what I've got to do next. And it's a lot of upheaval. Like, it's a lot of change. It's a lot of things that are shifting all at once. But it's this, this is like each part of the story is really important. But this part, what all those things that broke the shelf for me, they had to happen the way they happened. Otherwise, I don't know if I'd be able to get out, like, ever. Because. I mean, I have siblings who were raised by the same parents and they're still there. They're, whether they, they recognize that it's a problem or not is irrelevant. They're still there. You're choosing to participate in the charade every day. So, and I know that I didn't make it on, I like, I, I'm, I'm, I, I'll talk and I'll say my shit out loud. Really not at some point, not really caring about what the consequences are. And, um, I know that they know that I knew and I said it. So, you know, it's, um, it's really like the, all these stages really do happen in that certain way for a reason. And if you're, there are some people who stay and there's some people who go. And when, if you're, when you're the one who leaves that, I, I feel like the story arc is the same for all of us. And so I'm hoping that whoever else is in the position or feel like they're being called to leave the cult that they're in, their family cult, um, I hope that this story gives you a touchstone to be able to be like, you are, you're not alone. Uh, yeah, but it sucks. It sucks. But you're not alone. Um, thanks so much for listening this far, guys. And um, we'll continue the story next week. And... Um, finally get into what it's uh like to leave the the cult of one the cult the family cult and what it's like to be the one who leaves <laughs> all right i'll talk to you guys soon bye-bye thanks so much for listening to the cherished you podcast if you could please leave me a review um subscribe and share it really helps get the podcast out to those who it will help the most